Disclaimer. The following anime is commercially unavailable here in the West, so you will unfortunately have to watch this one by other means. Should this become commercially available here in the West, it is your job as a fan to either buy the physical release or to watch it on a legal streaming site. And now, on with the show. This is the Otaku Nate Show, Episode 2, The Fantastic Adventure of Yoko Leda. Down the Isekai Well. What is up, anime fans? Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show. It's the anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me for this installment are my co-hosts. Uh, hi, I'm Xavier. Hey, and I'm Jack. Alrighty, and today we are going to be talking about the 1985 OAV, The Fantastic Adventure of Yoko Leda. It's one of the uh, first OAVs, though not the first. Uh, Dallas predates this by a few months. Uh, this was directed by Kunihiko Yuyama. Prior to this, he was the director for Magical Princess Minky Momo, and would go on to direct things like Windaria and Ushio and Tora, the original OAV, but sometime in the mid-90s, he would sell his soul, and since then, he's pretty much been the director for everything Pokemon. The writer for this is Junkei Takegumi. They wrote a few of the Gegege no Kitaro anime, uh, along with Hayate the Combat Butler. They also worked on several big-name shonen properties like Naruto. He did the first uh, 100 or so episodes of One Piece. He also wrote some episodes for Yu-Gi-Oh! And, of course, the most important thing he ever wrote, Crystal Triangle. So, um, the reason why I decided to uh, foist this upon the two of you is because, given that Isekai is one of the biggest genres in anime nowadays, I wanted to show you, like, one of the first Isekai series. Of course... This isn't the first isekai anime. The first ever isekai anime, at least to our knowledge, is Aura Battler Dunbine, which predates this again by two years. But uh, what were your thoughts upon watching Yoko Leda? Xavier, you go first. All right. Well, I'm sort of in like the younger demographic of anime fans. And I guess like when I became an anime fan, isekai was like slowly inching to becoming this big thing. So looking back at this show now, I'm not going to say it hasn't aged well, but as far as everything else, like, it seems standard. Mm -hmm. I, I do like that it has, like, this Escaflone level to it. Like, I got those vibes from it, and that's really it's, nice, too. It, it's very much a shoujo title. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Jack, what did you think of Yoko Leda? Mm, right, okay. Well, uh, a bunch of my favorite animes are actually in the isekai genre. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on them, but uh, I would say that overall I did enjoy this, but you can definitely tell that this was something that was made in the 80s because it's got a very, very 80s vibe to it. In many ways, it actually reminded me a lot of Star Wars, so <laughs> yeah. But I really, I thought the animation was pretty good, and I actually really enjoyed the uh, soundtrack and things like that. So. I, wanted, I wanted to ask you guys what you thought about the animation, because... 
I have issues with fans who refuse to watch the older stuff because of how it looks, but um, what did you think of the animation to this? I mean, for the time, the animation is really good. I also agree that, like, I have friends who won't watch the old things because of the animation. Like, I'm trying to get someone to watch Sailor Moon, but he won't watch that either because of how it was. But, like, for the time, this was really good animation. Well, it sort of showcased what the OAV could do as a format. Because you compare Yoko Leda with what was coming out on television at around the time, and OAVs were capable of a lot more dramatic animation. I brought this up because... I talk about context, not only was this one of the first isekai anime, but this came out a few weeks before Megazone 2-3, perhaps one of the most important OAVs ever made, would burn up the home video charts in Japan, ultimately setting the scene for the OAV. So, Yoko Leda and Megazone 2-3 were sort of a part of that twin-headed behemoth that would kickstart the OAV scene in the mid-80s all through the mid-90s. So, who wants to give the premise of Yoko Leda? So, much like Escaflone, it stars... The main character is a, is a girl who has, like, a crush on this one guy. This guy with right? no but face. Then, yeah. Yeah, and, like, no character to him. But then she gets sent to another world, and she has, this it has like, a device with her, the, the uh, Walkman, that's seen as like this important thing in this world. And now she's a hero who has to like save both this world and get back to her original one. It's a simple premise, but it works. As I said earlier, Yoko Leda is very much a shoujo series, even though it doesn't really bill itself as something. Because I thought it was going to be straightforward isekai, but it's very much a shoujo. Because one of the central focuses of the Fantastic Adventures of Yoko is her overcoming her own shyness, as established in that opening sequence, and I absolutely love how this anime opens up. It opens on a solid white screen before Yoko just fades in via silhouette through a fish tank. And again, you wouldn't get something like that on from a television animation. Um, do you guys want to further sum up this opening scene? Uh, let's see, I don't really have that much to say about the opening scene, to be honest. Uh, I did think it was pretty interesting, the way that uh, it showed her, like, composing music. Mm -hmm. like that. Which sort of uh, becomes a major plot point later on. Oh, yeah, because, uh, well, let's see, well, I'll save that for, later, save that for a little bit later on. But, yeah, it's like, uh, I, I thought it was a pretty interesting opening to the whole piece, as a, as a rule. As well as, you know, it does a really good job of establishing her out of the box as well. And we also get a very nice uh, 80s-inspired musical score. I'll say this, like, watching this anime, I miss musical scores like this. Which were mm. sort of meant to accompany the scene and, you know, not just be there as sort of background ambiance. Yeah, I see what you mean about music and anime. It just seems like a forethought nowadays. Not like how it used to be, where music could play, like, a significant part, like, in the plot. If you want to hear a good example of this, uh, go and watch an episode of Sailor Moon and pay attention to how they use the soundtrack and then compare it to something like, say, a soundtrack by Hiroyuki Sawano. To throw out another name, the guy who did the music for this is, of course, uh, Shiro Sagisu, best known as the composer for Evangelion, and he also has done things like Bleach and uh, Gridman. This was his second project that he did the music for. Wow. 
Right. His first being the shoujo volleyball anime Attacker Yo, which I know nothing about. Well, I guess this would explain why I found myself being so fond of the uh, soundtrack, because, uh, yeah, he's done a lot of work on a lot of things I really enjoy, like Evangelion is actually my favorite anime of all time, so, mm. yeah, that that would that would definitely explain part of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I, I do like how this opening sequence establishes Yoko's character, because we, we see the faceless boy that she wants to pursue and to talk with, but she just lets him walk right past her, and she freezes up. She's lost in her music, and she can't communicate. And then, out of nowhere, she gets transported by a little bit of the bubbly. <laughs> like, the pavement just bubbles up around her and transports her to the world of Ashanti, as they call it. And for those of you who are listening, yes, we are going to summarize this whole thing but I'm not going to be playing the spoiler alarm because the spoiler alarm is for stuff that I don't want to be spoiled. I don't think there's any shame in spoiling a 70-minute one-shot from the 80s. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, it's always been my personal belief that statute of limitations on spoilers ends after 10 years. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it's somebody else's problem at that point. If you're not caught up, that's, that, that's your fault. So Yoko gets transported to this fantasy world, and we meet our villain by the name of Zell. And oh boy, what a villain he is. Um, what were your impressions of Zell when he was introduced? He definitely gave the appearance of someone who is competent, but but I couldn't say that he was like a frightening villain. He's more flamboyant. He's like a Maximilian Pegasus sort of villain, yeah. where he's not so much menacing as he is flamboyant. Yeah. He is also voiced by Shar Aznable himself, Shuichi Ikeda. It's like, design-wise, he reminded me a little bit of Roswell from ReZero, but, uh, yeah, that was, uh, like, yeah, I definitely got the whole flamboyant impression with him more than the menacing side of things, although I will admit, you know, he did come to embody that a bit more later on. Do you know who he reminds me of, at least costume-wise? This is, um, a really obscure little reach. But his design, for whatever reason, makes me think of the concept sketches for Salvador Dali in the Rejected Dune movie. You know, he's got the big flowing robes, he's got the intricate headdress, which is a giant turban with a rupee in it. He's overdone it on the pancake makeup <laughs> with lipstick. Not exactly menacing, but he is memorable. I'll say that about him. Naturally, because this is an 80s anime, he steals Yoko's most prized possession. Her Sony Walkman. Ah, yes. The st one of the staples of the 80s. The only thing missing are the leg warmers and uh, the crop tops, or whatever they are. I think it makes up for it with the speeder bikes, you know? Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that motorcycle chase. So, Yoko Leda is transported to the actual world of Ashanti, and we get a very, very beautiful montage of the various scenery and the creatures living within it. Set to a city pop song, of course. One of two musical interludes we'll have throughout this series. There's one shot in particular that I liked during this opening scene where Yoko is exploring the fantasy world. There's a shot of her. It's from a bird's eye view. She's walking underneath a tree branch, and on that tree branch is a beetle with its jowls opened. Sort of symbolizing the danger Yoko Leda is going to be encountering. 
should say Yoko's going to be encountering. My bad. I, I keep thinking her name is Yoko Leda because the words are so close together. And it is around here that we meet the second character in this show, and that is a talking dog, whose name is Ringham. What did you guys think of Ringham? It was a fine character. I guess back in the day, it's easy to have a talking animal as a sidekick, even in anime. Easy target that, like, can grab people. Mm -hmm. Did, he didn't really leave much of an impression on me, if I'm being completely honest. He, I found him to be an entertaining enough character, but he honestly felt like he was there to fulfill the uh, cute animal sidekick quota more than anything else. I think he pretty much yeah. nailed it there, Jack. He's just a character that's there, and he's a talking animal. And he is voiced by Tomoyama Kei, who was Duke Freed and Grandizer, Susumu Kodai in Space Battleship Yamato, and most significantly to me, Yang Wen Li from Legend of the Galactic Heroes, the original series. So with this encounter, Lingam, or Ringham, I'm going to use the two interchangeably, sorry about that, tells Yoko that she has been transported to the fantasy world of Ashanti, and that she has been transported out of her home world, our world, which is known as Noah. As in, pro-wrestling Noah. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I was, uh, I was just re-watching uh, Mitsuharu Misawa versus uh, Jumbo Saruta, so I had Noah on the brain there. <laughs> but apparently we learned that her music gives her special powers in Ashanti, and we also learned that she was teleported here by her music, and, you know, I've heard the phrase, music takes you places... But this is ridiculous. But in this encounter, though, her tape deck gets stolen by what look like robot ostriches. That was something. The designs in this uh, for the mecha are strange. I understand that they're supposed to be fantasy-oriented, but they're a bit on the alien side, if uh, you, you understand what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, what did you guys think of the mecha designs in this? Uh, I thought they were. I thought they were fine. They did what they needed to do. They certainly look like a mecha, but the problem with it is that it doesn't look like it's a mecha of their world. Mm -hmm. It looks like like something from outer space. Something about like a robot in this jungle-like setting just doesn't seem right. It's not like it say. It's not like say the mechs from Aura Battler Dunbine or Escaflone where. They look like they were from the world in question. Yeah, it just doesn't match. Well, like I, like I said earlier, I got a very Star Wars vibe from this OVA. I'd say it kind of reminded me a little bit of the robots from Star Wars, but also I got a very, very strong Magitech sort of, uh, sort of vibe from the mecha in this particular OVA. So, you know, like a, the, the type of technology where everything is fueled by magic, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's definitely a very fantasy bent to them, but it's at the same time, it's very, it's just, like you say, it's just very alien of it. It's just like, it's, it's such an odd type of design to look at for, for across the various mecha that you see in this OVA. Like Zell's surveillance drones that are effectively uh, giant kunai, but they're yellow. Yes. Yes, absolutely, definitely. That's one example I can think of. The ones that weirded me out the most are, like, the green robots that he sends out, because they look humanoid, but they have, like, these weird sort of green stingray-like bodies that are also extremely hollow. Like, I could mm. reach my hand inside that body and not even touch the actual surface. Yoko is chased by these two mechs, and then she gets vored by a flower. Yeah, but when I, when I saw that, it 
brought me back to that episode of The Simpsons where they visit Africa. Oh. They, specifically where they cut, or was or was it Brazil? Um, I can't remember exactly, but where they go off the where they go off the waterfall and they end up landing in this flower that just eats them. Well, of course, it's a transformation sequence where if you read too much into it, it has sort of unfortunate implications. But through the magic of Isekai powers, Yoko emerges transformed in her new outfit. This design, guys. Uh, Xavier, Uh, your thoughts. The anime trope of getting a new outfit to get stronger before many times, uh, particularly in Bleach. I thought that was... That was something. But what do you think of the outfit, though? Because as scantily clad as it is, it's a very appealing outfit. Like, there's just something charming about its simplicity, the color scheme, and the fact that it's blue. Yeah, I really like the outfit. A lot of people, of course, have... uh, of course, you know, this. I want to say that this was the design that inspired the armor from this uh, Mega Drive or Turbo Graphics game called Vat- Valis, but I don't have any confirmation on it. All I know is that the two look extremely similar. Like, if you see the outfit on Vatis or Valis, I don't know what it is. And then compared to Yoko Leda, the difference is strikingly similar. And of course, no warrior girl is complete without her sword. And Yoko has her own Sword of Omens. Seriously, it's the Sword of Omens from Thundercats. Yeah, well, I guess uh, you could pick something worse to follow the serial numbers off of, couldn't you? Actually, I believe this was before Thundercats. Huh, interesting. Because Thundercats was, like, what, 86? No, I'm wrong, it was 85, a few months before this came out. It is also here that we learn just what Leda is in this case. Leda is an unseen goddess that controls the energy between dimensions. And Zell wishes to use the energy of Leda to merge Ashanti with the world of Noah. So, it's basic evil villain plot, but it works for this show. And after that, we get a kick-ass motorcycle chase. Guys, what did you think of uh, this chase? The chase was fun. Yeah, I'd say it was was definitely a really good action-packed sequence, in my opinion. Yeah, we get to see, like, how she can handle herself in this new world now that she has her new powers. It's just a fun chase chase scene. It is great, and again, it sort of shows off the dynamic animation of the OAV for its time, because you wouldn't see something this complex on something like, say, Votoms, or is it Zenderman, I believe it was? Whatever Tatsunoko was airing at the time. Maybe on Urashimon, but not here. Eventually, though, the motorcycle chase ends with her falling on a giant robot version of Womp's Fortress. And I'm gonna say, this is one of the strangest mecha designs I've ever seen because it's just a block with arms and legs. Yeah, design-wise, the mecha... I guess, like I said before, like the problem is that it just doesn't blend together with the world it's inhabiting, naturally. Yeah, it's just... I just, it's the lack of detail. Like, there should be a face in the middle, or there should be a little more detail in the center, but it's just like this big gray slab of nothing with a castle turret on top. Yeah, it's like someone could have made this out of, like, a milk carton, and I would have totally believed it. It looks like a milk carton. I'll give you that, too. It looks like it's a place that they just ran out of animation budget, to be honest. (laughs) 
And it's here that we also meet the second girl in this anime uh, named Yoni, a blonde girl wearing an outfit similar to her. Do we have any impressions of Yoni? She's fine, but I felt like she was really only there to, like, dump exposition for a while. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. That's about it. Exposition, and on the rare occasion, she might do something cool. That's uh, about it. Flying her hover bike, which she also uses to control her robot with. Yeah. And she also hides her robot under the Mazinger Z pool. So after an exposition dump, we get introduced to the other mech in this anime. And it is a mech that transforms. It's now that a... mech I actually liked. I liked it too, but my problem with it are the rails to its neck. Because it's basically a mecha that was used by the goddess herself. And it has these rails that connect the cockpit to the body. It looks incredibly impractical. Like, if I were to just saw a little indentation, the G-forces would rip it to shreds. Mm -hmm. And those things do not look like solid steel. They look hollow for whatever reason. I do like the transformed robot, though, even if it is, well, brown. Yeah. But, I don't know, I like the color mainly because, like I said, the other problems with the other mechs is that they don't naturally blend in. This, it feels like it makes sense. It does. Like, it inhabits the world that it's in. Like, it's I believe belie- that this is a mech of this world. It is a believable design compared to, say, the giant bar of soap with arms and legs that we saw. Or giant mecha ostriches. It's like, alright, this is something that's clearly of this world. I find it strange that the character designs feel cohesive, but the mechs sort of don't. Like, you know, we've got these primitive primaval-looking mecha, one that looks like an actual ancient guardian, one that looks like it was made from a milk carton, and then you have, like, these futuristic hover bikes. It's strange with how that works. Would you agree, Jack? Yeah, I'd definitely say so. I mean, it was a pretty interesting contrast, a lot of the uh, a lot of the designs in this OVA, I felt, Especially... with, a lot of the, uh, with a lot of the setting as well. Along with uh, Zell's giant floating fortress, which is its own little Death Star surrounded by evil versions of Eve from Wally. Because that's what it looks like. He's got his own floating Death Star that Zell and Yoko eventually board, and they're greeted by a Matryoshka doll that wants to serve them dinner. So now we get to the confrontation between Zell and Yoko. And, uh, well, this certainly got uncomfortable quickly. Yeah, I'd say. The whole confrontation it was pretty it was actually quite uncomfortable to watch at least the at least in this day and age mm-hmm. like just uh, just look just looking at the way like a just like a violation of her mind basically yeah but i do like the little animation sequence where it zooms in on the ruby within zell's turban then zooms out to yoko then back again yeah, definitely. There's definitely some interesting animation going on there, but the whole context and everything, it does make it quite uncomfortable to watch. Oh, I almost forgot. Um, During the sequence, we get a little musical interlude with Yoko, which is certainly a little better than most times an anime does a musical interlude. Like, the worst offender for musical interludes in anime I can think of is Charlotte, because with that musical interlude, it was just a case of, we're just putting this here to fill time. Whereas this musical interlude sort of showcased Yoko's character and her inner insecurities. Her wanting to, you know, make a move on this boy that she's got a crush on, but not being able to. It shows her weakness, it shows her insecurities. As opposed to, hey, let's put a song here so that you can buy the CD. 
Yeah, pretty much. So, <clears throat> so with Zell having kidnapped Yoko, he releases his man hacks from Half-Life 2 and traps her within this, uh, and traps her in sort of this mindscape where he was the boy that she was looking for all along. I loved this sequence. I felt that as a whole, this whole sequence really showcased her inner strength. The way that she overcomes what what is basically like the Lotus Eater machine trope being put here. And, you know, just like, uh, just asserts it and overcomes his mind control. And the animation that leads into it as well, it's actually really, really interesting from an industry standpoint as well. I like the sequence in there where she talks about how she remembers her composing music, wondering where her tape deck is, etc., and the only response that Zell in this vision gives her is, I shteru, I love you very much. Mm. But she doesn't buy it for a single second. She realizes that this is all an illusion, and that the boy she's talking to doesn't really love her. He's not saying this to give her reassurance. He's just saying this to lull her into a false sense of security. And then the two of them are attacked by the South Carolina Stingrays logo. Yet another 5,000 IQ reference from me. <laughs> Well, it's got the same colors. <laughs> and, of course, everything sort of falls apart here when the robot starts acting on its own for whatever reason. And the Stingray I mentioned earlier, Yoko Leda slices it in half, avenging the death of Steve Irwin. hi Yeah, what a hero. Indeed. She ultimately ends up rejecting Zell, and the little heart thing that keeps pulsating is destroyed. But oh no, Yoko has to make it back to her homeworld. This this is the pivotal moment now. What do you mean by that, man? Well, now she has to get back home. Will she make it, or won't she? Of course, she says goodbye, she... goodbye to both Yoni and uh, Ringham. I should also point out that Yoko herself, since I've been naming voice actors, is voiced by Hiromi Tsuru. Probably best known as Bulma from Dragon Ball. Oh, 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 that was kill it. That was killing me. I was wondering why she sounded so familiar. She was also Ukyo in Ranma One Half, and also Meryl in Trigun. I will always know her as Leona from Dominion Tank Police and Reina from the Yakuza games. So Yoko returns home. And we get a sequence that mirrors the beginning of the show, where we see the boy walk past her, but as a showcase of strength, she turns off her music, and then she pursues the boy, and then roll credits. So what do we think? As far as Isekai go, it was pretty standard. But you know what? Story-wise, it did what it needed to do, and it delivered. It's a you simple story, but it works. You can definitely see a lot of the a lot of the stuff that you see in Isekai now. You can definitely see some of the beginnings of it in this. Uh, like I said before earlier, it does feel very very eighties, but that's pretty much forgivable given that that's the case for most of the anime at the time. It's always got that type of uh, thumbprint on it, and I'd say that it accomplishes what it sets out to do quite well. I'd say that uh, pacing wise, it actually handles itself quite well, even if it doesn't necessarily explain things as well as it yeah, could at times. I did find myself getting lost a few times within the. Uh... Yeah. yeah, me too. Sometimes I couldn't follow. Like, all right, what's this thing? What does that mean? But 
it's it's forgivable since it's such a short OVA. They only have like 70 minutes to work with, and I think for those 70 minutes, they don't really waste any time. Like I mentioned the musical interlude either. They could have easily just made that a music video, but it showcases Yoko's uh, inner struggles. Mm. There's a lot of heart to this, and it shows. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talent working on this. I mentioned the director would go on to direct Pokemon. You've got Shiro Sagisu doing the music and character designs that were done by Mutsumi Inomata. She was most famous for doing character designs for Cyber Formula GPX, but best known here in the West as one of the character designs for the Tales games. She did the uh, character designs for Tales of Hearts, Tales of Innocence. I believe she did Tales of Destiny as well. And she was also co-character designer on Tales of Zealia alongside Kosuke Fujishima. And in this, even though the outfits that they wear are scantily clad, I can definitely see a lot of Tales inspiration within the designs. The mecha designer for this was Takahiro Tomayasu. He mostly did key animation here and there on a few things. Like he was key animator on the Strike Witches movie. He did key animation for several parts for Tokyo Ghoul, but nothing that really stands out. Oh, he was a key animator for the Persona 3 movies. But cool. Yoko Leda is really the only time he's done mecha designs. And as I said, I don't think that they were necessarily bad designs, but incohesive is a better word, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they weren't bad. Like for this type of show, it just didn't match. Maybe if this was a type of anime that took place if in space. If it had a more or, science like, fiction as opposed to fantasy sort of setting. Yeah, exactly. Yoko Leda is more science fantasy, but the world feels more fantasy than science fantasy. Because what is interesting to me is also that you have an isekai with a female lead, which is something you don't see very often nowadays. Because I know you guys are more familiar with isekai than I am, because I haven't watched that many outside of this and... A few episodes of Overlord, which I found rather dull. But outside of Bofuri and and you thought there was never a girl online and... Oh, this one floated into my head. Do you like your mother and her multi-hit twin, <laughs> twin target attack? Ah, uh, yes. The multi uh, yes. I haven't seen that one, but I have heard yeah, about it. Yeah, because you don't see a lot of female isekai heroines in modern anime. I guess you could say it's due to the decline and marketability of shoujo anime and manga, but... Like, back in the 80s and 90s, female lead characters in isekai anime were fairly common. Like, the big ones that come to mind are... Yeah, the big one was Escaflone, Escaflone Magic right? Knight, Ray Earth, Fushigi Yugi. If you want to count it, Inuyasha. The main character was, of course, Inuyasha. Really? Kagome was the female lead character, but she wasn't his sidekick like, say, Asura from Sword Art Online. And, of course, a more obscure one that's also really good, The Twelve Kingdoms, had a female protagonist. Well, so far, only, like, Isekai I know of that has a female protagonist in modern time is, like, well, Tanya well, the Evil. Tanya, wasn't, like, Tanya a, fee a salary man in a previous life? Yes. Yeah, but now he's reborn then, as, as a female. It counts so. in horseshoes, as I like to say. Yeah, she was reborn as a female, so I'd, I'd like to count that. I kind of don't. Yeah, it's this is very, very murky territory. It depends on if Tanya actually does identify as female, which to my recollection, Tanya still identifies more as the salary man. She's a, he's a salary It's a salary man in a little girl's body. A yeah. very violent little girl's body. <laughs> oh man, I haven't seen that I haven't seen that show in a while now. I'm still waiting on confirmation as to whether or not we're gonna get season two, because I really enjoyed the movie of it. Well, 
Well, if it's popular enough for Isekai Quartet, then who knows? Maybe we'll get a season two. Yeah, this is true. I mean, it took forever, but we're finally getting season two of ReZero, albeit pushed back to the summer Damn now. Damn you, COVID-19! I, t- I tell you, when I found that out, I was actually, I actually legitimately got really depressed briefly. Because, like I, like, I don't really have a lot of room to complain, because there are lots of other people who've been waiting a lot longer than I have. Because I only watched ReZero around late 2018, early 2019. But, you know, I, I fell in love with it pretty much immediately, and it's actually number two on my favorite anime list. Um, Speaking of isekai, I fear I ask you, do you guys consider time travel like an isekai? <sighs> That's interesting. So, like, something like Zapon, where they go back in it, time. If oh. it's within our Earth, then no. It's a time travel story. I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider Steinsgate an isekai, for exactly. example. Here's where it gets complicated because, like, they explain in Steinsgate that there are different world lines, and the and that's it's how still, time travel works. It's still is that... our Earth, though. I'm talking about a completely right. other world. All right, that's that's fair. Now and then, here and there is an example of time travel that's on a different planet. <sighs> and I think Orgus but... is also the same thing, but that's a subject for another time. It also sort of showcases the difference between isekai heroes then and isekai heroes now. And this was an observation that was astutely pointed out by Daryl Surratt from the Anime World Order podcast. The isekai heroes of the past, regardless of personality, all had one goal in mind. And that was to get home. You know, they you sort of had that sort of sense of vulnerability to them. This homesickness. Like, they were the heroes of our story, but they were not the heroes in this world, per se. Whereas nowadays, people have often decried isekai as being the sort of male power fantasy. Wish fulfillment. Yeah, because, as I like to say, you know, screw going back to my home, I got this big magic fantasy land where I'm the hero of the story, and I got all these pretty girls around me that are gonna sit on my dick all night. (laughs) Yeah, some anime handle that side of things better than others like konosuba does that quite well by you know making each of the girls in it uh, you know pr- objectively pretty awful <laughs> albeit still likable mm-hmm. so coming soon from discotech media god bless them um but with yoko i think what makes her such a good character is her vulnerability because even when she gets the armor she's still a stranger in a strange land she doesn't have that sort of mastery of her sword right away she knows how to use it, but she's not the best. She ultimately yeah. has to defeat Zell mentally, not physically. Networks. That was that's quite refreshing, especially considering it was the 1980s as well. Because, like, I'd say the 80s is actually pretty guilty of the uh, whole instant expert trope. So, you know, not seeing that in such an early piece of this was actually, yeah, very refreshing. Well, the instant expert thing is mostly for the mecha genre because you know you could get into a giant mobile suit. And then read the manual and suddenly, up, I'm an expert Gundam pilot. If you want to see the worst example of instant expert, go and watch my favorite mecha anime, Aldnoa Zero. But again, going back to Yoko, she definitely has a definitive character arc. She starts off as this timid high school girl, but by the end she's ultimately conquered her inner strife. And she's no longer shy. She ends up pursuing the boy. Yeah, with how Isekai has really engulfed our culture nowadays... Story-wise, it's not. It doesn't feel original, but it does what it needs to do. The mechs are nice. 
It's the character. All right. Well, Yoko's Yoko and I guess Zell are the only really good characters. Her side characters are honestly yeah, I forgettable. I think that's another problem that I have. The side characters, both Yoni and Ringham, you could have removed them and it wouldn't really change all that much. I mean, yeah, not really. I mean, Yoni's design is nice. Ringham is a little too cartoonish for my liking. I mean, I will forgive him because he, again, he's voiced by Kei Tomoyama. But they don't really do much. Again, you could have taken them out and they would have changed nothing. Yeah, they're just sort of there. Mm -hmm. They act more as plot devices than anything else, in my well, opinion. They, well, so at least you can say, you know, why were they there? They didn't do anything. They were at least there to help with the world building. I feel that if you exclude them, you find yourself asking a lot more questions than need be. I guess we need someone to dump exposition. Why not them? Yeah, just uh, info dumping nudge the plot along in the right direction i guess mm -hmm. but i think that's gonna do it for a little uh, conversation on yoko Leda. again i apologize if this is a little rough around the edges i'm still getting used to this i'm still trying new things with the format overall i enjoyed the fantastic adventures of yoko Leda. i will admit it's nothing special nowadays but if you put it in context of its time and you look at the people who worked on it and what they would go on to do I feel Yoko Leda is an overlooked piece of anime history in terms of what it established and what it did. And I think that it also gets overshadowed by some of its contemporaries that came after it. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that. I definitely know what it feels to have a show you really like, but it's overshadowed by other mm -hmm. things. Zapong is honestly my favorite World War II anime. Nobody remembers it. Well, it was a victim of the anime bubble. You know, in an era where there was too much noise and no signal, Zapong got unfairly overlooked. Didn't help that it had that awful dub either. Yeah, I actually looked back at some dub clips. It wasn't that... It's actually not as bad as I remember Speaking it. of which, did any of you check out the dub for Yoko Leda? I wasn't able uh, I couldn't find it. Okay. And Wikipedia doesn't even list that there well, is a dub. I knew of its existence thanks to everybody's thanks to everybody's favorite 30-year-old boomer, Kenny Lauderdale. This video's since been taken down, but Kenny posted a clip from the dub of Yoko Leda because they did dub it, and all I'm gonna say is, oh my goodness, it's awful. Oh, man. This, I believe, was one of those dubs that was commissioned by Toho to be used as a tool for English teaching. Oh, no. It's basically oh. the well, legendary Macross, do you remember love, uh, Clash of the Bionoids dub all over again, which was also <laughs> used as a tool to teach Japanese students how to speak English. So, naturally, the acting is going to be stiffer than plywood. I may need to try and find that then, because I'm actually looking at uh, teaching English as a foreign language in Japan at some point when the uh, when the opportunity arises. So I might, I'd probably get a kick out oh, of watching it's, that. it's bad. Like, the one thing they do, and this is evidence when you know that this was meant as an English teaching program, they refer to Yoko throughout the dub as a Bobby Soxer. I am Yoko Asagiri. I'm a Bobby Soxer. A Bobby Soxer. Yoko, what are you really? Tell me. What am I? I told you I'm a Bobby Soxer. Ooh, if you're a Bobby Soxer, I am most impressed. What? I'm not kidding you. 
they keep referring to Yoko as a Bobby Soxer. Again, basically for the teacher to say see, that is not an actual English word. Oh my word. Uh, okay. If you were to give this thing a proper English dub, who would you have play who? And there's really only four characters to choose from. Uh, let's see. A good question. You know who I haven't seen in anime dubs for a while? Whitney mm. Rogers. Never have. Mm. I think she'd be good for the role. I can see Brittany Lauda playing Yoko, and I'm going with the NYAV post crew because again, you only really need four or six actors for this one. For Ringham, I'm gonna go with a surprise entry on this one. I don't know if he's still doing it or not, but Martin Billamy, aka Little Karibo. Oh. I think his British accent would be perfect for Ringham and his character. Like, that sort of nerdy British accent he naturally has. Like, his his natural British voice would be a good fit for Ringham. For Yoni, I'm going to go with Lisa Ortiz, but that's based off of her performance as Lena Inverse from The Slayers. And for Zell, and you're going to laugh, Dan Green. <laughs> that'd be interesting well i just feel that that sort of menacing voice he has would be perfect for zell but when zell is masquerading as the boy he can use little yugi voice because the man has range yeah that could work so yeah i think that's gonna do it for yoko leda not the most spectacular anime ever made but i think it's one that's worth a watch to see its historical context would you guys agree yeah, I definitely yeah. say so. You can de you can definitely see like the building blocks of the modern isekai in various places in there. So it's definitely worth watching from a historical perspective. And you know, animation-wise, especially considering the time, it's still a treat to oh, look at. The audio is pretty great. Yeah, the music's good, good, and the animation is great for that time. Mm -hmm. yeah, if you got like an afternoon to kill, it's it's only it's a good show. It's not going to kill you. If you're like right now stuck at home and can't go outside because everything's closed. This would be a good Not watch. me. I went for a run this morning around my block. <laughs> I'm a millennial. I ain't afraid of no coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing can kill me. Nothing. Well, no, seriously, I can't Whereas... remember the last time I've I've been sick. Uh, I've had a I've had a I've had a persistent cough for a, around two weeks at this point, but. The worst of that is far behind me, so yeah. Like, I'll get, like, a sore throat so, or stuffy nose, but it's mostly due to allergies. I can't remember the last time I ever ran a fever. That's like, I, I, was a, I was a smoker for many years, so my immune system kind of suffered a lot because of that. So, like, as a result, I don't get as sick nowadays as I used to, but, like, it still kind of hits me like a truck when I do, ah, so yeah. Ah, the joys of going straight edge. Well, it had to be done. The less money I spent on that, the more money I had to spend on anime, so yeah. <laughs> Any oh, yeah. any last words? <laughs> this was this was a fun experience to be on a podcast, and uh, if you ever decide to do an episode on like World War Two anime, I'd like to hey, be I'd on love for to that. Have you on for Zapang, man. Looking back, I I used to think it, the dub for Zapang was like not that great, but then I watched a few clips. I was like, all right, it's not as bad as I remember mm. it. Like the main characters are really good. You know, like you know what? This isn't as terrible as I remember it. Hmm. Well, we'll add that to the list then. Jack, any sure. last words from you? Uh, I'm just hoping that the coronavirus doesn't cause any more anime that I'm looking forward to to be pushed back, especially not the uh, upcoming season of Kaguya, which is, I believe, still coming next mm. month. Because, well, I mean, in between, uh, in between causing ReZero to be pushed back and, of course, the extremely unfortunate cancellation of the filming uh, of BattleBots. Well, it, the postponement. 
Hey, good news. With everyone home, you can go to the movies now because nobody's hey, there. I don't think Greg <laughs> Munson and Trey Roski would be stupid enough to cancel filming. I mean, that's a that is that is something. But yeah, the uh, postponement because I was really, really looking forward to having that to watch in May, especially with a lot of the uh, names that are rumbling to be to be returning this time as mm -hmm. well. When it eventually comes, it is going to be an insane oh, season. Indeed. So I think that's going to do it for this episode. Next time, we are going even further back in time from the 80s all the way to the 70s as we take a look at the original 1973 Neo-Human Kashan. So until then, this is Otaku Nate. I'm Xavier. And I'm Jack. And we're signing off and saying, my reasoning powers tell me, we'd better run for it. <laughs> <laughs>